take your Bible with me this morning to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 is we're going to be. We're just going to look at a few verses here, uh, three verses, and really we're just going to look at verse 7. But verses 5 through 7 in Romans chapter 15, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, there are some black hardcover Bibles in the back on the back table there. Go ahead and go pick one of those up. You'll find this morning's text on page 1,128 in those Bibles, if you have one of those in front of you this morning. Um, Obviously, we're diverging a little bit from our series in John's Gospel, uh, and I want to think about it several things. I'm going to give you that in a moment. But first, let me read this for us. Romans chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, what are we doing here? What are, why are we in Romans and not in John's Gospel this morning? If you had this natural break, um, our family welcomed uh, number six, uh, our sixth child, into, uh, into our home uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so I thought, well, here's a natural break, um, and, uh, and I thought we could extend that break a bit um, and take six weeks here, re-engage in John and June. So what we're going to do over the course of the next six weeks is consider together um, six different gospel principles or good news principles. Um, these are th- I'm going to explain that in a moment, what I mean by good news principles. But the reason I want to take a, 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 a bit of a detour here is to think a little bit just about the way that the last year has shaped up for us as a church in particular. Um, what the events of the last year has been weird. Um, we all feel maybe a little bit off still. Uh, but what I want to do is think about the opportunity that we have right now. Um, good, better, better, otherwise, what's transpired in the last year is a, uh, through the pandemic in particular has affected us in ways, whatever our thoughts on it are, um, that we'll set that aside. But there are things that we've had to do. We've had to adjust in our lives um, in several ways. And as a church also, we've had to adjust to the way that we approach um, even Sunday morning and, uh, uh, and different, uh, different things that, uh, that we have done throughout the life of our church just had to be rethought. But what we do as people, and just to think about us as our, in our own nature, is when we're thrown off, um, when our rhythms say, you have your day-to-day rhythm, your week-to-week rhythm, your month-to-month rhythm, and when those things are disrupted and thrown off, like they have been for many of us over the course of the last year, what the natural outworking of that is some pliability or malleability or flexibility maybe that we didn't have previously. Like when there's not, when there's, life is normal. If your life is just humming along and everything's going on, you've got goals, you're working towards those goals. Things are pretty solid. You know who you are and what you're doing and what you're about and you're moving in a direction. Um, But when that normalcy is disrupted, when we're, when we're broken down a little bit, when, when the thing that we would have done tomorrow isn't there anymore, um, what that does to us is make us pliable. When our normal is upset, disrupted, things become less concrete. They become less solid. 
And then we are introduced additional flexibility into our lives, good, bad, or otherwise. I want to talk about this the way that John talked about this last week when he preached in 1 Peter, especially in uh, verses in chapter 1, especially in verses 6 and 7, where Peter is talking about the trials that, are, that, that the, the churches that he's writing to are facing. And John talked about uh, the heat being applied to a precious metal like gold in order that the impurities might rise to the top and those might be skimmed off. It's an important metaphor in Scripture. But the, the truth is that when, that when the trial comes, when we're warmed up to a point where we're liquid, and, and then, then those trials begin to, begin to skim off the doubt and the unbelief and the lack of trust that we have for God. That's why those things come into our lives. Then there's a next step. There's a next step that comes after, after the skimming off of the impurities, and that's formation. There's a formation that comes. Because the, the metal, the precious metal, the gold is going to cool down, and it needs to take the shape of the one who is going to shape it. Like your wedding ring doesn't come out of the ground looking like a wedding ring, right? It, it comes out looking like a weird rock, and then it has to be boiled down, impurities gone, and then formed into something, poured into a mold or, or shaped with a hammer. And so when trials come to us, and the unbelief and the doubt is skimmed out of us, those trials come so that we might throw ourselves in the mercy of God, trusting Him more fully. But it doesn't end there. The next step, though, is that formation. And if we, if you were like every person in the world who got thrown for a loop in this last year, heat was applied in one way or another, whether it was in your workplace, whether it was here at church, whether it was in your family, um, the, the way that the world, uh, the normalcy for every human being was disrupted represents, I think, for us, as a church, a huge opportunity. I think it represents a huge opportunity. And I want to suggest that before maybe we cool down and before we kind of like reestablish these normal rhythms and patterns in our lives, that we should do more of running to the Word of God to be formed rightly. We want to run to the Word of God to form us as a church, to shape us into a, a vessel, a beautiful vessel for God's use to take the gospel to Jamestown. And so that requires a commitment by us as a people. It requires additional Bible intake individually with others. It requires regular attendance on Sunday morning, sitting under the preached word. It requires a commitment to deepen in our prayer life. It requires a commitment to lead our families to Jesus every day. It requires a commitment to disciple younger men and women, to give our lives for their formation and to similarly be formed by those who have gone before us. Now, that's a lot, and if you're thinking, yeah, okay, I'm not going to probably do any of that, I want to outline for you the threat, because there is a threat, and the 
our formation by the Word of God and sitting under the Word of God and digging into the Word of God as people is not just a, not just a convenience over the top bonus. It's not a compartmentalized little corner of our life that we get to leave, but rather it is, it is the sum and substance of all that we are because there is a competing force wanting to form us. The threat is, is just our culture at large. Our, our culture is a force that competes for your formation. You and I, we, we together are pliable, or just say that we are in, in theory because of the heat that's impli- been applied to us over the course of last year and have changed. And what the culture does is, in these moments is it shoots its shot. It, it comes to us and tells us we should get on board with its values, not biblical values. Biblical values in a lot of ways are seen as passe or moralistic or you pick a word that's become negative, puritanical. But when the, when the, when the wor- world comes to us and tells us to get on board with its values, um, we understand that Scripture knew that this threat was coming. The world and the culture wants us to get in on board with things like personal peace, these impoverished values that ultimately will leave us empty and unsatisfied, longing for more and digging into more places where, where God is not. Personal peace, affluence, many. There's a whole lot of idolization of the political system and politics and politicians. Um, The world is pressing us towards relative truth and questioning things all the way down to the binary nature of gender. The list is really long. It goes on and on and on. But again, the New Testament did not anticipate that the world and the culture around us is trying to form us. Paul knew it. He knew it for the church in Rome, the, the church that Paul writes the letter to that we're looking at this morning. Because in chapter 12, um, he begins this sort of like, how do we live section, the end of Romans from 12 onward. And in in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Paul knew that there was a threat of conformity to the culture at large for this church in Rome. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If there wasn't a competing force here, this sentence would make no sense. It's meaningless. But he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the fact that the world is trying to form you. You need in your mind to be renewed. Because a renewed mind sees through the impoverished values of the culture and applies the biblical ones, the ones that can offer you satisfaction, that can offer you hope, that can offer you abundant life. It discerns these things and sees if they are good or not. And those good things align with God's will. The way that our mind is renewed is through the Word of God. Us together with the people of God committing ourselves to the Word of God. Not just a glance, not just five minutes 
on a, on a Monday morning or on a Wednesday evening or something like that. It's just like look, glancing at your Bible once a week when you're headed into the teeth of a world that has a different agenda. A quick browse through some Bible verses on social media is not going to cut it. But meditating on the things of God over and over again this week. By doing so, your mind will be renewed. The heat of trials results in formation. But the question is, will we be formed by the word of God or the culture around us? Now, all that sounds pretty pessimistic, but I'm optimistic because of the reality that we're here this morning. We're, we're here to consider God's word together, and, and you have the thing. You don't need to be a pessimist about the world and the culture at large, no matter how far it moves away from God, because you have the Holy Spirit to illumine to you the words of God before you this morning. You have all that you need within you and before you this morning to not be formed by the world, conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's what we're here to do. That's why you're here. You're like, why do I come to church? It's not because you've always done it. It's because you need to be re- you need a renewed mind. You need to sit. At, why do we? Why do we have a preacher? Why, why do we? Why do we? Why do we have a sermon on Sunday? It's because you have to have a renewed mind. Because we need our minds to be renewed. So, with this in mind, again, what we're going to do over the course of the next six weeks is explore six good news principles that we want to consider as a church. When I say good news principle, I just mean something that flows directly out of the gospel. If you look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 15, it's, it's right there. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The gospel there is that Christ has welcomed you. Through his shed blood, through, uh, through the forgiveness of your sins, when you, when you repent and trust Jesus Christ to be right with God, because God sent Jesus into the world to die for you and me, pouring out of his grace through the person of Jesus. When, when this transpires, and when this exchange happens and this transformation happens, then there is a result. And it begins by living in a way like Romans fifteen seven says, by welcoming one another because we have been welcomed. Now we could say this about a ton of different things. And so, I mean, six isn't going to begin to cover it, but I want to give you, begin to give you like a thought process for this. Because we could substitute here what Paul says here, and the New Testament does this over and over again. We could substitute this word welcome with a lot of different words. Therefore, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, encourage one another as Christ has encouraged you. Therefore, serve one another as Christ has served you over and over and over and over again. This is what a gospel principle is, or a good news principle. Will practicing these things be easy? No. Should we do them? Yes. God's word is clear on how we should live. And ignoring the things, like this is very explicit. Ignoring an explicit command right here, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Ignoring that is is evidence that we're being conformed to the world and not being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So let's think about what Paul writes here, especially in verse 7, and what it means to welcome one another 
as a good news principle to live by. So here's the fully developed principle that I want to put before you this morning. You'll see it on the screen. Uh, this is the fully developed principle. We're going to flesh this out over the course of the next, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, hopefully. If through Christ we have been welcomed into God's family, around his table, and into intimate relationship with him, then the proper response is to welcome one another similarly for the glory of God. Now, I haven't really done much more than just tell you what Paul says in verse 7. Um, but I've added a few things because uh, the way that this concept is talked about through the New Testament. So we're going to explore that together. Um, first, let's think about just the word that Paul uses in verse 7, welcome. If you're reading maybe like the NIV or the New King James Version, if you have that translation in front of you, you might see a word like receive instead of welcome or accepted. Great. Those are great translations of this word. This word has a pretty broad range of meaning. So that statement in mind that you see on the screen there, where does it come from? We're going to talk about the parts about family, table, relationship, because uh, couldn't welcoming people, I think when we think about welcoming people, we think about smiling, shaking a hand, saying, hey, on Sunday morning, and that's like the welcome people, right? But we want to be understanding what the New Testament says and what is all contained within this word. So um, it's more than just a smile and a, hey, how are you? Welcoming others is more than just a smile and how are you doing today? Um, the New Testament word here that we see that's translated welcome or maybe in your Bible receive or accepted um, is, uh, is one that pops up a few times in the New Testament. Um, one of those instances, I'm going to give you three, one of those instances is just a chapter earlier in chapter 14 of, of, of Romans. So if just turn your page back, it, or maybe you don't even need to turn the page. But the first three verses here, Paul writes to the church in Rome, he writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Paul is highlighting here in chapter 14, he's highlighting again the way in which the church in Rome should live. How should they live? Um, and this is probably an issue that came up. And right here he's addressing dietary restrictions and, and how people viewed their diet. Um, but also, as he goes on in chapter 14, he begins to think about um, holidays and the celebration of certain festivals and holidays and, and what that means for, for people. Um, Paul is clear that these are secondary issues. These are not primary issues that we should build. What Paul is, when he uses the word opinions in, in verse 1, he's saying these are things that you've drawn a conclusion on in your own conscience, but they're not something that should divide you as a church. Now, we've got a ton of these in relation to the pandemic, and we could say mask wearing, vaccines, pick a thing. But our salvation is not contingent on these things. This is what Paul says. Our salvation is not contingent on these things. And therefore, they should not work as a division or, or create divisions among us. Uh, we should be able to welcome one another um, in the household of faith, in the local church, uh, without being divided by issues like dietary restrictions or the celebration of particular holidays. 
And the, the call here is then clear. If, you, if you've made something like this a dividing issue with your brothers and sisters in Christ, repent. Simple, repent. Paul uses the word welcome here, though, to indicate that regardless of opinions, believers should accept or receive those who are in Christ in the local church. So if we're going to say this together, it's up on the screen, but a church that is welcoming must not be divided by opinions. That's what we learn from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Another instance of this word in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, and it's kind of like just embedded here in this little portion of narrative that Luke writes for us. Paul, the Apostle Paul and Luke, who writes Acts, arrive in Malta after being shipwrecked and were met by the native people. And Luke writes, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Now, these just appear like details in a bigger story, and kind of they are. But, but the truth here is that there is something to be said about what it means to be welcoming. The first thing that I want you to note is that uh, the native people showed unusual kindness. I, I love that phrase. It's, it's not usual. It's not run-of-the-mill kindness. It's over and above. It's, it's extended. It's more than expected. But the unusual kindness is shown in a specific way, by understanding the circumstances and meeting a need. Now, this isn't hyper-spiritual. It's cold and it's rainy. That's the problem. They're meeting a need. They light a fire because they need to get warm and dry. Simple. And so, in this verse, all are welcomed Look at the universal nature of this. All were welcomed. Not one was not invited to sit around the fire. All are welcome to receive all that they need in less than ideal circumstances. That less than ideal circumstances is important because if we wait for, as a church, for perfect conditions to be welcoming other people in these sorts of ways, we, in fact, will never welcome people because we can't expect that conditions will ever be perfect for us. All are welcomed here to receive all that they need in less than ideal circumstances. It's more than a smile and a what's up. This is more than live and let live. It is a universal, unusual kindness that's demonstrated. Uh, the, the final use of the word, though, I want to point out is found in Philemon 17. Um, not chapter 17. There's only one chapter in Philemon, so it's just Philemon verse 17. Uh, this, well, Paul writes here, he says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, Philemon, this letter is a short personal letter that Paul writes to this man by the name of Philemon. And the setup is incredible. Like, it's just, this is great. Um, Onesimus is an individual. He's, a, he's actually a runaway slave. And Philemon is his master. And somehow, in his runaway Ness, he meets Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him. Onesimus gets saved, and he realizes that he, to do the right thing, he needs to go back to his master and make amends. And so, verse seventeen is really the 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 appeal of the letter. Paul writing this letter to Philemon, 
He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Not as a slave, but as a brother. And this is, this is dripping with gospel application. Um, listen, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul met Jesus Christ. Paul is a big deal in the Christian world. He's running around planting churches. He's discipling church leaders. He's, uh, he's sharing the gospel. He's engaging with the culture. He's telling everyone how Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures who come before. And he's on Caesar's radar. He's a big deal. Paul is a big deal. He's the most important New Testament figure outside of Jesus. And Paul tells Philemon to receive, or to, to welcome, same word, a slave in the exact same way as he would receive Paul. The principle here is this. To welcome one another is to show no favoritism. God didn't save you because you were a of a particular status in society. God didn't save you because you had X number of dollars in your bank account. God didn't save you because you look a certain way or dress a certain way. You were welcomed into his family through Jesus Christ regardless of anything that you said or anything that you did. Would we treat others in a way that God does not? Would we treat others as slaves when Jesus makes us brothers? When Jesus talks about the final judgment in, in Matthew's gospel, he says, he says, truly I say to you, as you did or did not do, it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Oftentimes you think, like, if Jesus walked in here, we would treat him far differently than we would treat others in this room. Jesus said to those who you, that what you do to the least of these, you did to me. So here you go. Three, three things that we learn about this word welcoming. We, we who welcome one another as Christ welcomed us are not divided by opinions. Or consider the circumstances and meet needs accordingly. And do not play favorites based on appearance of status and wealth how we might personally benefit. So that's all loaded into verse 7 here, when Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Some of that we just see in the verses 5 and 6. Uh, Live in such harmony with one another. Together with one voice you may glorify God. Those who welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you live in harmony and unity with one another. So the question then is how then do we live? How do we, how do we reflect this to the world around us? How do we as a church be a, a welcoming community of faith? Again, we're going to talk about six different principles, um, but this is a good place to start with welcoming. And again, I want to say that phrase that I said out of the gate. If through Christ we have been welcomed into God's family, 
around his table in an intimate relationship with him, then the proper response is to welcome one another similarly for the glory of God. And then the so what, the real life application of welcoming comes in the way that we understand how God has welcomed us. How has God welcomed us? He's welcomed us into his family. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Through Jesus, we were not welcomed as outsiders. We were welcomed as very sons. Members of God's family. Additionally, God welcomes us around his table. Uh, The angel in Revelation 19.9 tells the Apostle John, he says, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Because we've been purified by the blood of Jesus, we are welcomed to a great feast at the wedding that ends all weddings. This is the celebration that's going to come when Jesus returns. And it's an intimate celebration. It's not going to be televised. It's for those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's for those who have been called by God himself, who have been redeemed, who have been set apart. It's not going to be on TV like Harry and Meghan. You're not going to get to watch it if if you didn't get the invite. You're there. If you're there, it's because God has personally signed, sealed, and delivered your invitation in Jesus Christ. The third thing, and this is the important one that I really want to press on, we are welcomed into intimate relationship with God. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. This is intimacy on display. This is intimacy on display. All that God the Father has made known to Jesus, He has made known to us. How do we know that we have a friend in Jesus? He shows us the Father's plan. A plan that includes our friendship with Him. God doesn't withhold from you. You imagine, oh, I don't have an intimate relationship with God. He promised you He doesn't withhold from you. You did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also freely, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the real life application of welcoming is just mirroring these things that we understand to be true about the way that God welcomes us. How do we reflect the way that God welcomes us to the world around us? Just take these things and do it. The gospel compels us as a church to be a church that welcomes one another like family. Now that that phrase gets hijacked. It gets hijacked. Um, The Bible has a bead on the family language, okay? Um, Corporate America or universities, your employer might say something like, this workplace is a family. Or I get mailers from uh, NDSU continually reminding me about my bison family. Um, But the CEO of your company didn't sacrifice his son and sign the adoption papers in his blood. The the president of your former college probably doesn't even know your name. 
But your heavenly father crushed your son so that you might be brought into his family and treated with the intimacy of a son or a daughter. And he knows way more than he knows just your name. He knows that each, every individual hair on your head. He knows more about you than you could possibly ever know about yourself. He knows everything and ensures your eternity will be marked with abundant life. That's the family that we should want to be a part of, not the one that panders to us to be more productive or the one that that wants to sell season tickets to the basketball games. Are we a church that looks like a family? Like your brother or sister diagnosed with cancer, would you drive across the country for that person? Absolutely. Would you drive four blocks if it was a church member? The gospel compels us to be a church that welcomes one another like a family. Secondly, the gospel compels us to be a church that welcomes one another around the table. I've been explicit about this in the past. Intimacy comes through eating together as a people. The table is a place in which we grow in relationship with one another. Our tables should not only be reserved for our biological family, but should be, include brothers and sisters who are celebrating and who are mourning. It should include and have a place for brothers and sisters who share different opinions on gluten. It should be a place where we reflect the reality that God welcomes us around his table. Friends, I'm convinced that this this church would be bursting with love for one another if we as people would just commit to eating with someone who is not part of our biological family. Whether it be at 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 a table at a restaurant, whether it be a picnic in the park, whether it be around our own table, we would commit to eating with one another regularly. Just like in anticipation of that wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. The gospel, thirdly, the gospel compels us to be a church that welcomes one another into ever-deepening relationships. This is, again, the big one. In our culture, we view our relationships as commodities. What does this relationship offer me, we ask questions like that. How do I benefit from this? Sometimes the word networking just gets used as a, a fancy way of saying using people for personal gain. The result of welcoming people who have different opinions looks drastically different than the world does. Our world is one that is continually divided by the most petty of things. If we're, a, if we're a church that does not allow petty differences to divide us, that is a huge testimony and gives God glory. We meet the needs of others. We don't just think about ourselves. We welcome one another to showing that we already have all that we need in Christ. We show no favoritism. The world tells us to Leverage relationships for gain, but we welcome one another to show that God's approval is greater than man's. God is glorified when we see the immeasurable benefits of the gospel and when we live them out amongst one another, welcoming one another in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the promise that you make to us that it will shape us. God, we thank you that when it goes forth, It does not return to you void, but it accomplishes all that it purposes for us. 
God, would you cause us to be a church that is welcoming? God, would you cause us to be a church that, that is not divided by opinions? God, that is not that sees needs of others despite imperfect circumstances and seeks to meet them. God, would we be people who long to love and grow into deeper relationship with you and reflected, reflect that to others around us? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.